Welcome, everyone, to Scholars of Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the academy. My name is Derek Price. I'm Kyle Romero. And I'm Terrell Taylor. And we're back. It's episode three. Um, we're talking about Civ Five. Terra Novum and Excelsis. Beautiful. Oh, very good. Welcome to the the scholars. Scholars sing a new live karaoke gaming podcast. Yep. We specialize in the first of its kind. Yeah. Yeah. So mostly just acapella. Um, sort Vide- of video game unaccompanied intros. video game intros. Yep. Yeah, it's a specific genre, it's a very specific genre, very niche. I've got niche. you know we've been doing a lot of market research. We've got a lot of reports, a lot of analytics, yeah, definitely. a lot of synergy that suggests that this is really a, an untapped market. Um, so we're tapping the shit out of it. Yep. Uh, can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> you, we make this podcast. Of course you can. Yeah, I guess I guess we can. Um, yeah, let's let's get let, let's bring it back. Um, so. We're talking about Civ Five today. Uh, we're going to take a look at that game that is a that's been out since 2010. So this is a little bit of an older game. We could have looked at Civ Six. Um, we were thinking about that, but just sort of like there's a there's a more sort of thought surrounding Civ Five, and it's just been out for a longer time. A lot more people play it. A lot of more people can play it. Can run a lot of machines. So we just went with that. Is also cheaper. Yes. Bingo. So if you would like to play along, yeah. thirty dollars as opposed to sixty. <laughs> yeah. We love you. Yeah. We're thinking about you. Play. And really, it's yeah. about we're talking about like the civilization game series yeah. in total because, you know, there's a, the documents we're reading today, which Derek will get to in a second. Are some of them focus on Civ three? Some are on Civ. I think I think actually both are on Civ three. Yeah. Um. But there, there's kind of recurring elements in the game that are the important doing the important interpretive work, and that's what we're interested in. Absolutely. So like Civ five is in in a certain kind of way an an example for a sort of larger trend that we want to talk about today. So to help us work through this kind of stuff, we we took, uh, we took picked out two, this time two academic articles, um, one by a guy named uh, Kevin Shute. This was a 2007 article. Um, I believe it was in Gaming and Culture. I think that was the journal. Yes. Games and Culture. Yeah. Games <coughs> and Culture. Uh, it's called Strategic Simulations and Our Past, The Bias of Computer Games and the Presentation of History. And uh, we're also taking a look at uh, a piece from Alexander Galloway's book, uh, Gaming, Essays on Algorithmic Culture. This is the fourth chapter from that book, and the, the chapter is called Allegories of Control. We'll get a little bit more into that, and I'll set that up a little bit more for us. But um, I just sort of wanted to start with uh, with the game, talking about Civ V. Um, so just a little background info. I mean, uh, to also a little disclaimer here at the beginning. Uh, Kyle, you've put in... I think I have around 400 hours in Civ V now, so... This is super not the case for me. Uh, <laughs> Unembarrassed I, to say that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, no shame. Uh, I've got 16 or 14 hours in the game, and I've beaten it one time. And I've started two other games that I got very close but never actually finished. I have less than that. <laughs> uh, have not beaten it, and I... For personal reasons, will not disclose how far past the tutorial I made. <laughs> Yo, I actually like two of my play sessions were trying to work through the tutorial, and then you couldn't save, and I was like, "Oh, I guess I have to do this again." And then I just sort of said, "I'm done. I'm just going to try it and learn it on the way." So that's the way I did it. Yeah. So so we're we're coming from a, a sort of variety of levels of experience with this game. Uh, I think for a game that sort of requires lots and lots and lots of hours to really really get it. Uh, I'm really glad that Kyle's here <laughs> to give us that perspective, but we're all sort of coming from different different places on uh, on this game. And I'll shock everyone by saying this was my idea for this episode. <laughs> really, the, yeah. the, the the historical simulation <laughs> yeah. of, of civilization. It's a shocker to everyone. 
it was me. saw it coming. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a little bit of background on the game for those, I mean, obviously a lot of people listening might even know more than us, but this is sort of, for those who are not super familiar with video game genres and that kind of stuff, um, Civilization is a really kind of like a foundational game in the 4X genre, that 4X genre being explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate. I guess the 4EX doesn't sound doesn't, quite doesn't as good. ring as well, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, the first Civ came out in 1991, and now there's been like I was counting the releases and the like mod and the the DLCs for it. There's something like 16, 17, or 18 like different iterations of this game, right? So like lots and lots and lots of history behind this game. Quite an old one. Um, Kyle, do you want to like sort of walk us through a little bit like what Civ looks like? What what does the player do? What are you interacting with? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I think Derek covered it really well with it's a 4X game. I think a kind of key thing here is really also that it's kind of the prototypical 4X game as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it wasn't the first one that came out in 91, but it has kind of set the standard for the genre to the point now where games that come out are kind of either seen as like Civ clones or, you know, trying to do something different, you know? Um, and so it's become the standard in the genre, for better or for worse. Um so yeah, basically the way you play, it is a turn-based strategy simulation game. Uh, you start, uh, depending upon how you set up the game, but if you were going to start a basic game, you pick a uh, nation, or it kind of has changed it up lately because you can play as you know Venice or you know Native American tribes, like not necessarily like modern nations or even nations that exist anymore, uh, led by a great leader, which changes Civ to Civ. Um, if you get all the expansions of Civ Five, I think there's like forty something leaders you can choose from. You know, from George Washington to Pakal of the Mayas of like, and pretty much anyone you could want, right? Yeah. Um, you choose one of those people, and you get into the game. It's turn based. You start with like a settler. Uh, you're on a map. Uh, it is a, I think, hexahedral game. Excellent. Right. Perfect. Is that the pro- <laughs> hex? I was just gonna say it's a hexagon based. map. Yeah, hexagonally yeah. based map. Uh, yeah. You move around. You build your cities up. You can settle new cities. You fight bad guys or not bad guys. You fight <laughs> other civilizations. I was adopting a little. Uh, we'll get to the bad guys part. So. Yeah, a little hegemonic <laughs> attitude yeah. there. Um, you basically try to expand your civilization in four key ways: economically, culturally, techno- technologically, and militarily. Mm-hmm. Um, all those have different platforms. Um, they all interact with each other to some extent, and the kind of goal is to win one of three victories, a cultural victory, a technological victory, or a military victory, which is uh, cultural is you produce enough culture that everyone is kind of in awe of you, uh, a technological victory is you go to space, and a military victory is you just conquer everyone else. Bingo. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really perfect summary. Um, just one quick note. I, I know I played just like the base Civ Five game. I did not put, play with those a lot of those... DLC bits. I don't know, Terrell, what you... Base Civ vibe that you buy on Steam. That you That's get on sale during one of the holidays. Yeah, yeah. $7.50 mm-hmm. if you get exactly. it at the right time. <laughs> yeah. Didn't get it for $7.50. Oh, yeah. Oh, I did. Man, robbed. Um, yeah, so I think I think that sort of... That's a really great description, Kyle, because that sort of summarizes the scope um, and the scale at which this game operates. So this is really... You know, the game title kind of implies it, but this is supposed to be some sort of simulation of the history of society or something yeah. like that, right? And this the kind of like... the key part of this, sorry mm-hmm. not to interrupt you, but no. I think the key part of this is that you start in 4000 BC and you go to, I think it's 2050 is when right. the game is poorly. So it's a 6,000 year, if you're going the whole way, uh, adventure. Yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, 
that sort of broad time scale sort of functions uh, such that, you know, as the player, you're sort of existing at sort of the God's eye view. This is sort of a uh, top down sort of point of view that you have when you're playing. And uh, you are sort of ca- taking care of your nation, more or less, um, you know, individuals you do you are theoretically playing as a person you know you get referred to as uh, Caesar when you're playing as Rome or something like that but you don't have like an avatar in the in the world or anything like that and you're sort of cultivating a, a society at a very sort of broad view um, I wanted to sort of just launch jump right into sort of our personal experiences of playing this game um, Terrell do you want to let us how did this work for you um it kind of didn't if I'm being perfectly honest. Okay, yeah. Um, and I'd give sort of two particular reasons for that. Um, first, I found the systems to be somewhat, I don't know, I guess, and to be fair, I think that really doing it right would require more time than I put into it. I'll just be upfront with that. Um, but the uh, just something as simple as, you know, there being objective in some of the tutorials, like connect two cities with a road. And, okay, so I'm building these roads. It's like, what exactly counts as connected? Does it have mm-hmm. to be the adjacent hexagon, something like that? That's yeah. a very simplistic complaint, but it's just like getting into the sort of game space of thinking, all right, what are the rules of this area? How exactly does it function? Okay, I need to find a mine that can give me X much productivity if I use it. All right, which, which areas can I build a mine on, and then how do I know how much I'm going to get from that mine? All sort of small, very interface things. I just found myself kind of having to get over a barrier uh, and sort of get into the kind of language of the game to get. And I think not on an unrelated note, um, and I've noticed this is something that uh, a lot of people take issue with this in a number of different games, and these are games that are particularly popular, so I will also, again, put myself in minority um, on this question. Uh, So, for example... A lot of people have this criticism of the game Skyrim, for example, where here are a number of different races that you can put your character in. Here are a number of different classes. Here are a number of different skills. Have at it, right? Mm -hmm. Fill your skill trees. Do what it is that you do. And I'm just like, I don't even have square one from what decision should I make? Which direction should I explore? There were several times where I was like, all right, let me set my settlers out on this particular direction, and maybe I'll find something that looks good. And it's like, well... I didn't find anything that looks good. And I barbarians went, captured your settlers. <laughs> right. Or right. let let me get the, you know, uh, the technological development so I can start going out in the water. Maybe once I cross this little chasm of water, I'll find something cool. Oh, wait. I have to, like, get so much, you know, expansion of my actual territory to be able to, like, build something there. Yeah. Well, that costs a lot of gold. How do I get more gold? And it's just, like, the chains of sort of the ways that the systems are interacting with and how to sort of best use them was just something I just didn't really get my hands deep enough into. And that's yeah. probably a personal shortcoming, I will admit, but nonetheless. So um, I'll, I'll echo that to, to a, a, a large degree. Um, like I said, I spent maybe, I don't know, 15, 14 hours with it. And there's a, there's a great de- a degree of sort of, I don't want to say clutter, because that's really a negative sense of the word. But like, there are a lot of different resources you have to keep track of. And they, they're in different spaces. And it's just a very complex game. And in, it conveys a lot of how to play it through text. Um, there's little pop-ups. Like, <laughs> excuse me. And like someone tells you how to do something. But like, 
it's very small in the corner, and I almost always found myself just saying, oh, thanks, but no thanks, kind of. <laughs> you um, disregard your economic advisor? Exactly. And, like, the science advisor who almost always just says, you have such and such citizens. Is, now that's efficiency. <laughs> just, like, he kind of has just, like, one thing to say for most of the game. But um, learning how this game operates, I think, is something that, that does require some time investment, and I bet Kyle could definitely speak to you. <laughs> That that arc of of learning. Yeah, I mean, I invested the time. That's <laughs> you sure did. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, so again, I recommended this game. I did not put four hundred hours into Civ Five between the last podcast and this. I should probably <laughs> also point out that would be amazing, and I wouldn't be in grad school anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I picked up Civ Five right in twenty ten when it was let out on. Um, I guess a couple months after, because whenever the the next winter or summer sale was, I believe it was a summer sale. Um, I picked it up for, I think, 30 bucks, and for me, it was just, like, the game I had always wanted. So I had actually never played Civilization before Civ V, which is my great shame, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I've always been a huge fan of real-time strategy games, of, like, Age of Empires, um, Age of Mythology, those kind of games. Uh, But I always wanted something a little bit bigger in scope. And so uh, Civilization really just scratched that itch for me. Um, And, you know, I am a historian, so I like history, but, and we'll get into this later... I don't actually really appreciate Civ Five for its work with history. I actually think its work with history is like very shallow. I appreciate Civ Five because I really love 4X games and uh, turn-based strategy games, uh, real-time strategy games, and I think this is kind of the epitome of the series. It's got so much money behind it. It's got so much kind of development and institutional and infrastructural backing uh, that for me it's kind of the epitome of what that game uh, genre can be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't know, like, I know people that really like this game because it's a chill kind of game. Like, there's ways to play it that are, like, very, that they describe as, like, super relaxing. Like, once you do have this sort of, like, I know what the paths to victory are, I know how to sort of operate the interface, I've learned which things are good to do at what times, um... Then you can sort of, I guess, sit down with this game and really just kind of like chill out a little bit. That's you... exactly how I feel. Yeah. Okay. So I like I it's a it's a game that I need to dedicate maybe like seventy to eighty percent of my mental energy to work, so I can have music on or like be watching TV and just kind of like zone out and play it. At this point, I don't really need to think a lot when I play it, which is actually really interesting. Maybe turn into the articles a little bit because. Once you start doing that, getting in that space of playing a game where you don't really think about it as much, you're just kind of interacting in it, you've already kind of institutionalized certain ways of thinking about things. And the fact that Civ Five is a historically uh, in- inspired, historically situated game yeah. is particularly kind of, I don't know what the right word, frightening to me after reading yeah. these articles is that yeah. maybe I've kind of, you know, codified in my brain, yes, mm-hmm. this is how I think about how... His, you know, historical progress works and technological progress because it's become so second nature to me to think like, yep, you know, we get uh, religion and then that leads to the compass somehow and then the compass somehow <laughs> leads to architecture and, and I'm like, these things work. Um, yeah. And especially for, you know, more casual players or people who aren't, you know, in graduate school who just maybe take these things more at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be kind of good to, you know, maybe listen to a podcast that talks about this <laughs> that could kind of disrupt those modes of sure. thinking. Sure, yeah. So yeah, I, I think that I think that tension between like it's a chill game that like has you experience time in a certain kind of way that like the turn basedness of it I think is no small part of its like chillness, but also that like once you do go into autopilot with you do start sort of sucking up some of these ideological elements. Let's let's dig into some of those things. Um, 
What are some I mean, before and I, we, the the article both articles we read touched on uh, a lot of the sort of problematic or ideological sort of uh, elements to this game. But before we actually talk about it in those terms, what were the what are the things that stick out to you guys the most that 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 are like Ugh, this is really kind of a a nasty thing if, if you feel that way about the game. I mean, Terrell, problematic other, might be a better yeah term. problematic nasty. yeah things we yeah, live yeah. in the problematic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh damn that's good. Nice. Yeah, it's not mine, but you know. <laughs> I suppose the one thing that raises a question within my mind, and I guess this is is part of my you know discipline and some of my focuses and research coming in, is that when you codify groups as nations, there is something of a kind of homogenization that happens. Um, and when you call something a nation, uh, and you say like the United States as a nation, if you will, right? It raises the question of, well, what, what's within that, right? So, and I don't know, Kyle, maybe you figured this out. Can Martin Luther King or Malcolm <laughs> X or um, Amiri Baraka be leaders of nations, as many would assume that they were, but, you know, in the context of the game, they can't function as such because we define a nation as a very particular thing. Yeah. No, I don't think so. You know, like, there's no kind of space for dissent or like dissension dissent within the kind of space you know um and once and you know all the 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 leaders that like the great leaders that are the leaders of each nation which change from civ to civ again but like they're all politicians for the most part you know there's no like great social leader i think in civ 6 it's theodore roosevelt leads the u.s with george washington i think Theoretically, Gandhi is. Oh, Gandhi. Yeah, but, mean, but Gandhi was a political leader, right? right? So, like, like yeah. there's no space for like a like religious or social or you know um, other space for that, right? Mm-hmm. Which raises the question about you know this sort of I think three win states, but four factors into those win states: uh, economics, culture, uh, military, and technology. How those are always sort of interwined with one another, mm-hmm. and part of the simplification, which we'll get to later, uh, means that you don't get some of those interlapse interactions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so like um, I think we see like the the the, mon- the monolithic sort of view of culture here. Um, the focus we were talking about this earlier before we started recording, focus on sort of nations or sort of tech like objects instead of people. The sort of actors of history in this game are not people, but instead are 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 technology. Right. It's it's sort of a you know class you know reification is happening here thoroughly. Um, and this is sort of part of its 6,000-year narrative scope is that in order to tell that story, you can't focus on individual people yeah. um, and that those can't be the main things driving the plot. You do sometimes get, like, great people. You know, you'll get, like, right. a like Goethe some, for, like, a writer. Yeah. Maybe you'll get, like, an engineer or something. And the funny thing is is they always, like, disappear mm-hmm. because they're, they, get, they have to be used so yeah. like they can, you know, make a factory if you get, you know, like, Rockefeller as an engineer which I always thought was pretty funny yeah. because um, he wasn't. Um, he just creates a factory or yeah. he like speeds production. So yeah. like the people are very ephemeral in the game. Absolutely. They sort of, the, 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 you can, what I, the, one of my favorite terms that I saw was uh, you can, whenever you get a great artist, they can be a culture bomb, yep. which is like. <laughs> you can consume them. Yeah, you can, you can consume this unit to create a culture bomb, which will sort of like. Uh, expand your, <coughs> sorry about that. Expand your territory uh, wherever you set off this culture bomb. So, um, the, the, these people become things. Um, I, I think maybe this is a great time to sort of move into one of our articles. Yeah. I um, think we should point out really quick that sure. like probably a lot of these concerns that we have have been written out pretty extensively. Absolutely. And I think you know, 
at some point, some of them are kind of not facile, not the right, but like pretty obvious, right? Like the ones True. like problems with nations, problems with the tech tree as being like linear and completely, you know, based on Western progress, you know, sure. like to say like, yes, I'm going to play as the Maya and you play to 6,050 or 2050 and you get, you know, Marines and airplanes and stuff. Like it's kind of silly, right? Um, but I think it should be pointed out. Like we are recognizing that like these are very obvious problems a lot of them have to do with the game design but i think shoot and galloway get into some really interesting kind of like ways that these things balance together and um yeah it's probably a good transition point to yeah that. absolutely i think that's i think it's perfectly it's really important we're not just sort of pointing out the obvious things there we're going to work through them a little bit too so um so shoots uh article is again called simulation uh strategic simulations and our past the bias of computer games in the presentation of history um Terrell, do you want to sort of walk us through a little bit of the background of this article or just sort of take us through its main points, that kind of stuff? Sure. So uh, before we get into the article proper, this article appeared in 2007 uh, in Games and Culture. and or ga- Yeah, Games and Culture. And that is actually one of the, I want to say one of the higher up uh, journals that focuses explicitly on games. There are a few other ones, but in terms of thinking about games from a kind of cultural context, cultural studies element, uh, rhetoric element, I think this is kind of one of the top journals uh, out there doing that kind of work. And so it's coming out in 2007. Um, I think that we've talked a little bit about games criticism in some different uh, modes, but this being in a kind of academic mode uh, is something unique and um, worth calling attention to. So Shoot is particularly concerned about simulations from the perspective of education and the possibilities of simulations of history uh, for education and to do a particular type of work uh, in terms of advancing the medium and doing a particular thing with video games uh, that we haven't seen before. And he explicitly is very careful in the first couple of pages to come out and say, you know, I'm excited about this, but we need to attend to some of the difficulties in this. So if it reads a bit critically, I think it's coming across critically uh, for the intent of trying to get it right, not necessarily to say that we should not do this. And so I think that that's kind of an important thing uh, to think through that no, no matter what our opinions of civilization, et cetera, that this is an attempt to sort of think through the medium uh, to kind of be in sort of an antagonistic cooperation. And I think that's very much the spirit um, of this article. And early on, he sort of sums up his uh, view or the kind of approach that he takes two simulation games uh, as what he calls media ecology. And the basic sort of um, principle there is that when you look at the dominant media of a culture, that will reflect the sort of dominant culture in terms of its assumptions, themes, values, so on and so forth. And from there, he gets into a concept of what he calls media bias. Um, And one way to sum that up very easily would be media bias is to say that a particular medium uh, is conducive to expressing certain ideas or certain thoughts or certain ideologies uh, differently or better than others. Uh, So, I mean, a simple example would be, uh, well, a very simple example, I think, that kind of gives you an idea of this, something like uh, directions, right? You know, you can go and print off MapQuest directions, which is what many of us did before we could, you know, have GPS on our phones. Uh, but that's a very different way of sort of navigating a space versus actually having the kind of guidance system with the video, so on and so forth. And so the thing that he's sort of thinking through are the ways in which uh, video games as a medium are sort of structurally set up 
to get to, across certain particular perspectives or certain opinions uh, and the ways that it becomes disadvantageous to others. The metaphor that he used that I find particularly intriguing is the metaphor of a hill where you know it's very easy to go downhill. So it's very easy to get to certain perspectives from this medium, but to go up the hill is uh, much harder. And that raises two particular questions that are sort of worth uh, talking about, which is one, it's difficult, uh, even though there are games that can work against some of the dominant assumptions uh, built into that medium, it's not as easy as just sort of wishing it away. To say that it's malleable is not to say that the same thing that is easily sort of changed and altered and bent. Um, and then there's also the questions of the players, right, or the consumers of the media, or the people who are um, the audience, if you will, various different ways of, of representing that category. And yes, they have a certain level of agency in how they interpret, but it's um, important to also acknowledge that there's a certain work that they always have to sort of go against if they're ever to read something uh, against the sort of normative or dominant grain therein. And so he starts off by um, pinpointing the uh, sort of field of computer programming and gaming as kind of having something of a masculine bias. And he starts off by saying that, you know, that's a, a factor of basically being a, an industry dominated by men. Uh, but it's more than just a question of, you know, the actual representation of the people working there, but it's also a question of, again, those themes, those values, and those assumptions that are ingrained within uh, the particular ways that this particular medium has manifest itself. And he goes through three particular areas of uh, the ways that that uh, is manifest. The first is a kind of um, masculine view of history in which he focuses on the question of aggression. And let me just back up for a second and um, say that in this particular um, article, Shoot is focused on four games in particular. Civilization, correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, four? Or is he focused on three? I think three? it's three. But okay. I think also that the series in general is right. kind of... Right, because, yeah. well, okay, you know, three, <laughs> Civilization, yeah. yeah. So Civilization, Sid Meier's Pirates, uh, the Battlefield series... In total war. So there's an interesting spread and some different um, variances and different ideas of what it is to simulate different modes of simulation uh, therein. So in this first category, in terms of the masculine view of history, uh, each of these simulations always has some theme of domination and aggression. So if we even just sort of back up and think about civilization, right, we have those uh, four categories, economics, culture, military, and technology. Each one of them, even culture, Although it may be sort of, you know, some might call this a kind of soft domination as opposed to a hard military domination. It's still about uh, the dominance of a particular cultural mode or cultural perspective as opposed to others. Uh, Shoot particularly thinks that this is kind of a way of intertwining the kind of economics and the cultural piece and putting them together. Technology. Uh, is also represented in that particular way, and such that you know the dominant mode of all these games and all these ways of representing history is always focused on a question of domination rather than any other sort of mode in which uh, nations, groups, so on and so forth, might have interacted. And the way to achieve victory is always through kind of like historical modes that have been dominated by men. Precisely. So politics, economics, war, which... They don't. They didn't have to be dominated by men, but they just historically have been. And if by taking those as their categories, right, right, right. I think that the the sort of gender critique is one mode that he sort of moves through with this article. It's not um, the exclusive form of domination, but I think that that's the one that he's um, most um, focused on. Uh, so the second 
uh, form or sort of a set of assumptions within it is a sort of systematic view of history. And I think that something that occurred to me earlier as we were talking about technology was the fact that the sort of the technology wind state, if you will, is making it to space. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just the, the sort of the, the end point or the sort of thing that he wants us to think about is that's a very linear, very simplistic way of thinking about technological progress as such. And part of the thing about a simulation is, is that it has to have a set of rules and all games have to have a set of rules. So it has to be reduced to something that can be applied in several different scenarios over and over again. Um, and so what does it mean that that, the space race, is a form of technological domination, especially since would space have really been a question in the 20th century if it weren't for the context of the USSR versus the United States, right? That's a very culturally specific form of historical progress that has now been reduced to a common standard, whether you happen to be playing as American Indians, um, the Aztecs, or Russians, or any other context. Do you want to chime in? Yeah, no, I I think that's that's totally important to, to note here is that like, Tech, uh, tech seems to be that that driving factor that it's like a purely the idea that it's a purely technological victory <laughs> totally ignores the fact that it's like based on like political, very specific political cultural sort of uh, competition between nations. And um, yeah, uh, Kyle, just yeah. jumping on that, like yeah. he he has a I think Shoot is a good historian. I think he is a historian, but even if he isn't, uh, I think he's a good historian because <laughs> historians are all about hedging all the time. <laughs> the point, you know, where I mean. Historians very rarely make any good theoretical innovations. We just take other people's and are like, yeah, they have some problems, but we'll use this, you know. Because uh, he says something along the lines of that, like, um, the game institutionalizes, like, uh, the progress of time as incremental and sequential, right? And we learn that through the, the clock that's going, but also through the technology the technology tree which you can only go in certain ways and he says wouldn't it be better if this could be like a web you know or uh different different trees you know for different nations as opposed to every culture has to start with a certain thing and once you get to the modern era you have to get the radio tower you know like these kind of really basic uh technological progress things and interestingly Civ 5's expansion Civ 5 Beyond Earth has a web of technological development huh. um, as opposed to a line it is like in the future so they don't have to stick to historically what's happened um, <laughs> but yeah so he you know he says we could do that and then he says right afterwards but I realized that'd be super hard you know <laughs> like right. it'd be really hard to code right yeah. and like to understand and to progress but we have the technology for yeah. it now you know we don't have to operate in binary anymore right mm-hmm. we have a lot of fancy computer terms that I don't understand sure. that let us do this yeah you know, before getting to the last point, which I will, I, I wonder if that's true, and maybe we can come back to that in a second, but just want to throw that in there. So. You wonder if which which thing's true? Uh, if it's true that, well, obviously, Civ has sort of included ways to do that, or the um, whichever. The web versus the Right, the web line. versus the um, the single line. Yeah. Um, so, you know, something to return to. Yeah, sure. But uh, the, uh, the third point is he makes a difference, or he thinks about the focus on spatial interactivity. And thinking about the way that space is sort of uh, thematized or represented as opposed to events as a way of sort of thinking about history and thinking about it, um, the way that things play out. And this gets into an interesting conversation about media writ large. There's an interesting focus and conversation on what it means for something to be realistic or objective and how the photograph is a particular form of media that did a certain type of objectivity or represented something in a particular realist light that did not have the possibility for 
um, different interpretations like written text. Uh, but the way that video games can, you know, s- would seem to complicate that, but in fact don't, precisely because the feel of moving through a digital representation of space can gain that sort of objective weight of oh, this is the way it really was. Mm-hmm. It can as make to, the consumer think right, right, that they're exactly. operating right. in an objective right. realm. Yeah. Perhaps borrowing from the objectivity of the photograph as a, yep. as a medium, and that because we think that, well, obviously this is more complicated and more intricate, this must still have some of that realistic element. Yep. We miss the way that there's modes of fabrication in a sort of digital object that is not within the, um, the, uh, the photograph. Yeah. Um, I This is a point for me of contention with shoot. And uh, we were talking about this earlier, but there's one term I think that actually right here we could introduce it. It's not in either text that we read, but um, I've been sort of doing some other work in other classes here, uh, uh, media studies stuff, and we've been reading a lot about photography. Um, one of the key terms for, photog- for studying the photograph in general is this idea of indexicality. Um, the photograph, and wh- what that term really means is just that, like, the photograph just seems to be real. Like, it seems to speak to a real object in the world in a way that, like, a painting does not. So that a, a painting always has some sort of spin on it. It's more, it's idealized or it's been cast in a certain light. And when we see a painting, we don't say, oh, that's literally exactly what um, King, whatever, George the something uh, actually looked like. Help me, historical Insert reference. Insert king here. Insert king here. Well, I'll <laughs> I'll edit that in post and just be like King the, George the, the fifth. <laughs> um, you know, we we don't we don't look at the portrait and say, oh, that's what he really looked like. Uh, but with the photograph, it's sort of just like you know, this is this is the earlier sort of uh, thoughts about the photography. Obviously, Photoshop changes this a little bit, but um, <laughs> you look at the photograph and just it, it just sort of impresses its reality upon you. And that's the sort of the indexicality of the photograph. And so that's like from from what I've did the work that I've done, the limited work that I've done about theorizing about um, photography, that's sort of the objectivity of the photograph. And this is why I sort of like totally sort of disagree with his characterization of photography, where he wants to suggest that actually games are, in a sense, more objective. Um, And I, I just think it could be that we're talking past each other. But to me... Games share more with the painting than they do with the photograph because they are like they are so constructed just in the way that a painting is like the background, the foreground, everything in a painting and everything in and outside the frame is sort of, uh, you know, intentionally done or or unintentionally not done or something like that. Uh, Same thing with games like you are working within an engine, maybe, but it is sort of I don't know. I, I feel like it's 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 just as much shot through with intentionality such that that indexical nature of the photograph doesn't impress itself upon me as much. Kyle, do you mm. want to respond? I'm making funny faces on the uh-huh. side of the room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a pretty valid point. You know, I think, you, you know, he should be a little skeptical of the whole, you know, it is actually more objective than the photograph, it seems, right. for, you know, among reception. Uh, but I think there, there is some validity and maybe not as much in Civ Five because, you know, when you're playing Civ Five, you're not really seeing any things. You know, you're seeing you know a thousand million feet up in the sky. You know, like people right. building buildings. But taking a game maybe like Battlefield, you know, especially with the new Battlefield that's come out. Like someone playing that, I bet you, if you ask them, like, what was World War One like? 
you know? They could tell you, like, oh, okay, well, we're in trenches, and, like, people wear these kind of helmets, you know, and we have these kind of guns, and this is what, like, a, a, a bombardment raid sounds like, and this is what this kind of artillery sounds like, and this is what a sniper rifle does. And that's what's, I think, concerning him, you know? It's not as much the Civ Five, like, you're up in the air, but those kind of real simulation reenactment games that people are going to think, like, oh, I understand what being in war is like now, or I under, you know, you know, they wouldn't be as brazen as that, I don't think. But like on some subconscious level, people could think, I now fully understand a historical experience, which, again, the kind of whole point, like Terrell excellently summed up, like the whole point of his article is to kind of uh, not to critique for the sake of critiquing, but to try to promote better games and to say that uh, games are great for giving you that kind of experience and that interactivity, but we should also be skeptical of making people think this is exactly what happened historically. You are fully inhabiting another person, you know, and to have maybe some pushback against that, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. To Sorry, Terrell, did you want to? Yeah, just one thing. Um, I think that you're, you're definitely right in terms of the, the question of the fabrication, the fabrication of, um, of the game space. I mean, just particularly, you know, when Maxime Duran, um, person who worked with who does the historical work for the Assassin's Creed series came he did mention that one of the things that they do is kind of rebuild the engine almost not quite from scratch but very close uh, for every single machine so there is something you know very fabricated or very constructed if you want to use a less loaded word in there but I think the the other thing that's kind of at play in this article um, that might get us into some conversations with the next piece uh, is this difference between the actual and the virtual uh, insofar as if we want to talk about uh, indexicality, as you referenced it, is sort of a fidelity to a type of reference that's external to the text. Uh, part of what happens in a digital space is it produces its own referent. Hmm. So, for example, you know, if we want to talk maybe not Battlefield 1, but say the Call of Duty 2 games. And the one thing I think that, you know, in a different simulation sense, playing as the sort of Russian campaign in the Call of Duty 2 set, so that first one that came out for 360, the shakiness of the guns, the fact that you do the, um, what is it, the tutorial and you're throwing the potatoes instead of real grenades because they're sort of, that all kind of gives you a sense of, wait, this is a struggling country. They don't exactly have, you know, the best equipment out there for everyone. Now, is that the way it really was? Maybe not, but the game has kind of produced, become its own referent with its own sort of logic of what was the experience of at the time. And this is the danger for a uh, uh, shoot here, right, is that, that I love the way you phrase that with like it becomes its own referent and the issue here is when it's a historically referenced game is when that can become problematic is because then people can start inhabiting like the referent then becomes uh, conflated with the actual historical reference so they think yes I now understand what you know being a Russian soldier in World War II was like you know at least to some small degree when a game should you know we should be promoting that. Like, you should try to inhabit other people's shoes, I think is a generally good way to live your life. But also, uh, you, I, I would be wary of people then accepting that kind of, like, objectivity is normative. So that, like, uh, you know, you can fully inhabit. You can fully understand someone else. That's something we should probably push back. All in. text is a work of translation. Indeed. Such. Indeed it is. <laughs> and and so, so, so here, here's something I want to give to Shoot and, like, be generous with him. So, um, I'm sure he'd very much appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sure he's really hoping that he's I... He's hurting right now, you yeah, know? Yeah, he's like, oh, these graduate students with they, they're sticking no it to jobs me. <laughs> are, are really just nailing me to the wall. My tenure is so Oh, painful. man, yeah, it's tough. Uh, I, I think there, there's something... He, he sort of, when he's describing this idea of like the objectivity of games, he says that it um, feels real. 
And I think this is a perfect transition into our our, our third sort of text here. Um, I think there is, I think we want to hang on to that feeling because I know we all, you know, we've all played games where you explore a space. The first person, third person sort of genres are often about largely exploring different spaces. Um, and I think that that experience is something cool. I don't think it's objectivity, but I do think it's something interesting. And I think it's really what uh, Alexander Galloway in his book in the that we were reading a chapter from uh, is sort of getting at when he defines games sort of early on in the text as action. So um, this is sort of outside the scope of what we read. So I just want to quickly overview what, what Galloway is getting at in this book. Again, the book is called um, Gaming Essays on Algorithmic Culture. Um, Galloway's a, a sort of a professor of media, culture, and communication at NYU. He's doing sort of like philosophy and, and working on technology and working on media. And um, he's sort of, this book is an attempt to sort of conceptualize games in a different way. And I think that this idea of games as actions gets at that, that sense that um, in the way that like the photograph is a sort of like the still image and then the film is like an innovation on the, to, to a moving image, he conceptualizes games as the the enacted image um and this allows him to sort of construct an idea of games games for him only exist when they're being played there is no sort of game anywhere except when the operator that's usually a player but it could be another algorithm playing the game um the sort of the operator and the and the machine sort of come together and both do kinds of work to make the game happen um, so, so I think I think maybe what what Shoot is describing as the objectivity of the game, the sort of spatial exploration, is that sort of is the pleasure and is the experience of of sort of doing games, of enacting them. Um, let's let's jump now to the actual chapter that we that we worked through. Um, for those of you who I don't know if anyone will ever sort of be listening to this and working through the text with us, I hope one day that you do. Um, but if you're not, uh, this sort of this chapter comes. It's the fourth of five chapters, and he's sort of he's sort of setting up a a different way of thinking about critique or a different method for approaching games. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go through what I my best version of a summary of this chapter. Um, he sort of writes in a particular way. He 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 he's relying a lot on sort of cinema theory, critical theory. Um, there's a lot of French postmodern philosophy here. We've got a lot of Derrida, a lot of Deleuze and Guattari, um, if those names aren't familiar to you. Um, Google them. Bingo. <laughs> and then and then you just read them for 10 years and, you know, yeah. it's we're all still working through that or stuff. Or just throw out their names at conferences and people will nod their heads and respect you. Yeah. This is also very, very important. Um, if you so, can't tell by now, Derek is a pretty big fanboy of Galloway. <laughs> oh, that's not true. Sorry to set you up like that. I didn't read his essay like three times or something it's like yeah they're totally not um i do and i do want to get to the the kernel of what i do find interesting here so he sort of establishes uh different ways of relating to games so what we've largely been doing here in talking about um our experience of civ 5 and what i think a lot of other people do when they sort of want to do critiques on this game is they'll do something like he sort of has three different sort of methods of approach interpreting demystifying or scanning is this third sort of new one um 
we like in, methods of interpretation, methods of demystification. They've been these have been around in literary studies and philosophy departments and cultural studies departments for the longest time. Where he sort of sums up, I think he sums them up very nicely and quickly. Like interpretation is sort of like getting at some sort of meaning that's already in the text or or the object you're just you're you're studying. Demystification is a process of like getting to a latent, non-obvious meaning. So when I when I say something like, "Oh, the barbarians are sort of like secretly, uh, you know, this sort of expression of brutality of civilization," like uh, they they have no culture and they can just be taken out. Uh, as long because they're not complicit in informing their own civilization, they they sort of are this object that can be eliminated early in the game in Civ, in Civ Five. That's sort of like a a, de, a tr- an attempt to sort of demystify the sort of good guy bad guy sort of easy thing that we can fit into in, into games. So that, that's an example of what demystification might be. But Galloway wants to sort of push us beyond doing sort of interpretive and demysti- demystifying kind of critiques and go for something that he calls scanning. Um, and this is, he borrows this language from sort of like a, like a French journal that's sort of introducing this terminology in the 70s, I think. But sort of scanning is, is sort of looking across the surface of a thing and looking sort of for patterns and like allegorical patterns. I know at this point this is sort of like a weird way to think about it, but, um, and it's borrowing obviously language from like computers and scanners and like tech, technology. And this is the key sort of... Um, distinction that Galloway wants to make is that in a computerized society, those methods of, of critique like interpretation and, and, um, and demystification have a sort of like, have a certain kind of structure built into them so that there's the, the thing on top, which looks like it's right, but turns out not to be. And then the true thing at the bottom, you know, and um, that's sort of, he calls that a sort of vertical um, method of critique. And he sees scanning as sort of a horizontal one. Um, and so to just sort of speed this up a little bit, uh, he sort of, um, uh, um, there's this sort of, he's setting up a, another sort of uh, schema for thinking about society, which is this, um, we've got sort of the traditional, oh God, this is really tricky. Um, <laughs> In 10 words or less, yeah. summarize Galloway, yeah. Um, he works through Foucault's idea of disciplinary society, and he says, we don't really live in disciplinary societies anymore. And the disciplinary society is characterized by the institution. It's the prison, it's the school, it's the barracks that produces people who belong to that institution in a, in a strong way. Do you guys feel like that's a fair – well said. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So sort of the subject kind of internalizes the institution yeah. within them. And that this is a modern inv- inv- uh, invention, rather it was pre-modern, was based on a vast, like showy – public trials to prove authority, whereas now it's based on internalized oppression. Exactly. That's that's great. Those are perfect. See, he kind of likes Foucault. Yeah. See? We read him too, guys. <laughs> Historians do theory. <laughs> they, they do. They definitely do, especially at Vanderbilt. Um, but so like the, so, th- so that's like the, the, if that's the modern paradigm, he sees sort of computers as changing society in a, in a big way. And he's drawing on um, Deleuze here, which is that we move instead from like a model of discipline like the prison, we move to a sort of model of the highway. And the highway is not an enclosure. It doesn't keep you in a specific space and, and sort of shape you materially to become one thing. It sort of provides access to a multiplicity. This is like a network kind of a thing. And uh, at the same time, it's still a method for controlling people. It's still a method for exerting power because the highway sort of sets up 
the possibilities of where you can go, right? So um, this is sort of like Galloway reads um, Deleuze and says, yeah, this is, this, is what, this is the society we live in. And here's the key connection to video games. I'm bringing it back. We're getting there. If you're wondering, the article itself kind of reads like this, too, because it's yeah. not like seven pages in until he's like, oh, and also video games are important. Right. So this- it's, uh, it's, it, it's that frustrating and, and lovely way of writing that he has. Um, and so, so Galloway sees that games sort of show us, and this sort of informa- this control society is based on information. And games, especially like Civ Three, which is his, one of his primary examples, they sort of show us this informatic control right on their surface. And that's, the, that's one of the key things is like where in films, if you watch Bad Boys 2, uh, like it's one of his <laughs> another examples he has, like there's like they, they, they will just like they're going out there, they're being badasses, but they're not like doing paperwork and, they're not, and you don't see the trials or the bookings for all of the, the perps or whatever, like the people that you arrest and stuff like that. None of that stuff gets shown on screen. And so... In, in order for us to sort of, like, if we want to look at a film like that and sort of talk about society, we have to dig underneath to find that stuff. Games, I think he might also be the only scholar ever to put Bad Boys 2 and Heat in the same <laughs> sentence. He's like, you know, cop movies like Bad Boys 2 and Heat <laughs> right. are like this. And I was like, whoa, we're equivocating like yeah. one of the greatest movies ever made. And and Heat? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was really worried as to what was going to be the greatest movie ever there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, oh gosh, this is this is tricky. So anyway, um, the key thing here is that um, games allow us to have access to the method of power, the method of control, and that's information. Games are sort of based on information, and that uh, when we're playing a game, we're not only sort of working through the narrative and that kind of stuff, but we're also sort of working through the algorithm of the game. Games are sort of fundamentally cultural algorithmic objects. And um, yeah, so, so I mean, that, that's the key point here is that like, because we can sort of, when we're playing, we're sort of playing at two levels at the same time, um, there's a sort of different kind of critique that we can carry out. And that's a critique of the algorithm, not so much as, as the ideology that's, that's being put forth. And here's the, here's the key point, and this is, I think, um, the fundamental thing of his thing. Uh, is that, so for example, he's talking about identities of different cultures in Civ Three, um, and they have like these various characteristics, like they're militaristic or they're industrious or they're, you know, uh, expansionist or something like that. And these always have mismatches with real history. Um, but the key thing is that like uh, these these ideological things are not so much uh, based on like what these societies really were, but on the idea of sort of modularity. And variability, and these are the, these are the two key concepts for for computer sort of informatic control. Is like every identity, whether it's a culture or a person, can be sort of you can swap little pieces out of it, and it's sort of infinitely bendable. Uh, in and in, in sort of because because a concept has a lot of wiggle room, so to speak, um, that allows for you to create these sort of fundamental systems that can encompass lots of different sort of differentiality. And I'm going to stop talking now <laughs> because it's time for someone else to talk. You know, I think that's sort of a good way to maybe maybe bridge the two pieces, uh, Schutt and Galloway, uh, in part because with this sort of idea of the web, right, or the as opposed to having these like individual uh, nations or different character profiles where they each can have a silo of, you know, this is what progress looks like and the silos are functionally the same, even if they 
sort of have different names or whatever on it. The idea of a web in which each particular module will not be reducible to the other. Uh, I think the term for this, and I don't know who's coined it, I'd have to go back and try and do my homework, is would be asymmetric play. Whereas what I think we're seeing in a game like Civilization and some of these other games that we're sort of looking at is symmetric play. Whereas even if there are different sort of names for it, so on and so forth, it all is reducible to the same. And the kind of gold standard uh, that many have sort of claimed for asymmetric play is Super Smash Brothers. Whereas, you know, yes, well, everybody came, has <laughs> everybody has a special attack, everybody has a download, but the ways in which they all play out are so radically different that to, you know, if you play as, say, well, I'm a NES player, original 64, oh, the yeah. rest are not Ooh, good. I oh, thought shit. we were friends. <laughs> See, And you like Destiny, and you... <laughs> Wow. Don't tell me you're a Jigglypuff player. I mean, I'm a Kirby man myself. Okay, Kirby. You are the scourge of Kirby. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's very good, but it's you You're the worst. <laughs> I'm a Kirby or a Link. I, I, I switch between Kirby Link. and Link. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Let me try to bring this back. <laughs> um, We're going to just talk about this for the next hour and a half. Okay. How could you... No. So uh, the beauty of Super Smash Brothers at first would be it seems to be a way to kind of get out of that sort of reduction to um, difference but the same if you will. But I think that the trap there is, and I'd be interested to see if, you know, the sort of web version of Civilization falls into this too. Uh, you know, within the 64 version, the best version in my opinion, again, of Super Smash Brothers, eventually people have played it to the point where there's a sort of tier system, right? And, you know, if so-and-so is playing Pikachu and you're playing as Ness, you're going to lose. If so-and-so is playing as Kirby, the cheater of the Super Smash Brothers world, you're going to lose. Um, and you have to figure out, okay, what is the sort of, what are the kind of, you know, symmetries or the sort of rock, paper, scissors game to be able to beat those and those right. functionally kind of become the kind of modes of expression or essentially that kind of way of kind of feeling things out. So. Whereas in Civ Five, I mean, really like the only meaningful differences between each nation come down to two units and a uh, nation ability, you know? So right. you get uh, a couple specialized units that are kind of historically based for each thing, and, you know, maybe you get a very small ability. Like, you get more money from certain actions, or your ships can move faster, which, like, does not change gameplay asymmetrically, right? Mm -hmm. What I was sort of thinking about is that Super Smash Brothers, with the sort of web and the asymmetric play, feels like it can kind of escape the control society, yeah. based on the kind of whatever affinity you have with the character and however it is that you express and learn that character. Yeah. But the fact that there will always kind of be this kind of implicit logic by which eventually unfolds, whether purposeful or not, that orders play such that X character comes out on top versus the other character means that, yes, this feels wild, chaotic, and you're screaming at each other at 2 o'clock in the morning after playing the 17th game in a <laughs> row. But wait... Even if it's not like strong master hand controlling the code, there is a type of logic that unfolds over time that governs play, governs contingency, so on and so forth. Yeah. So, I mean, that's – Kyle, you got something. No, no? Okay. Uh, so, like, that's close to what I was thinking, but I remembered while you were talking. Even, even with the – I'm actually saying something else, which is that even in Smash Brothers – uh, which is asymmetrical. I think that's a. I think that's a good, like, useful term here. And Civ, which is relatively symmetrical, like the the attempt is really to keep them about as equal as possible. Um, they both rely on uh, the idea that either like a character's individual identity or a sort of whole nation's identity has is is composed of distinct sort of modular units. So that even with the characters, we have like 
they have they have modular. They have like a certain kind of special attacks, certain kind of normal attacks, um, certain kind of weight, certain kind of jumping skills. Um, the variance is wider, I think, with with Smash Brothers, uh, and sort of Civ three or Civ five sort of demonstrates the modularity in a sort of different way, where all cultures end up being reduced by this this yeah. principle of modularity. This is something that Shoot and Galloway both reference, which is it's kind of one of these kind of basic like critiques you make of, of civilization, right? Is that essentially it's all reductionist, obviously, uh, but like <laughs> you know, a big problem with the game is that it, it you're breaking down the complexities of all civilization and history into like. Uh, one type of sequential progress, every nation is pretty much the same, every nation should progress in certain ways, right? And they all talk about that, I think, pretty effectively. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, do we have any other thoughts about... I, so I have, uh, uh, <laughs> I think I should probably just get into it. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't the hugest fan of Galloway. Yeah, fair. Uh, Derek and I are going to have a, a street fight after this <laughs> to, you know, settle... Uh, all of this. I don't want to, you know, I- impugn Galloway's honor. I think obviously it was actually... Street, street fighter fight. Yes, obviously. Yeah. yeah, we're going to be like bouncing up and down and yeah. punching a car for a while. Exactly. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so I don't want to, you know, impugn his honor. I think it was actually a pretty good article. The the idea of the informatics and that, uh, which we kind of got off topic from, but like That's okay. that civilization uh, series, you're kind of enacting all these minutia of everyday life, which is the inversion of what a film would be like, right? Mm-hmm. Where you you don't want to see the minutia. You don't want to see all the little nitty gritty details. Whereas in Civ Five, that's what like, I live for, you know? I thought it was sure. an excellent point. But my issue with Galloway, and I think this is kind of where I come down on the side of Shoot and why I liked Shoot so much, is that uh, Shoot is very sensitive to the kind of institutions that make video games, right? He's, he's you know, he's not doing in-depth, you know, interviews with, like, any game developers or anything, but he gives you some statistics. He's trying to, when trying to explain why games are masculinist, his word, right? I mean, that's also a word. Uh, you know, are masculinist, are focused on masculine endeavors. He's like, you know, at the end of the day, it's because these institutions were made by men, you know? They were, and a new game that would come out in the 4X genre you know, it doesn't have to follow these rules, but there's a kind of like historical weight to these um, developments, right? Where a new developer, they're going to have grown up playing Civ their whole life. What kind of game are they going to make? Are they going to make um, the papers, please? Cultural materiality. Yeah. Kind of are they going to make this genre. war of mine? No, they're going to make basically Civ again, you know, right. a game that focuses on military and economic um Production. So this this kind of weight, this kind of pressure that is caused by the institutions that surround video games and the context, I think is is pretty important. It's for me as a historian, it's the most important thing, <laughs> uh, which is maybe where I draw a little tension with Galloway and apparently some of my cohorts on the podcast. <laughs> no, no, um, not at all. I, I I think that's it's a point fair taken. I, I guess the the sort of the the pushback is basically that Galloway sees and or through Deleuze sees society sort of shifting and those those institutions which are influencing people are being fundamentally reshaped by the computer yeah. and i think that's maybe the key takeaway from yeah. from galloway's pieces there are multiple pieces operating here like i don't want to yeah. suggest that you know institutions and context and historical weight are the most important right but yeah. just recognizing the multiple axes that we're operating on Absolutely. and i mean again we're just rehashing text and context debates you know yeah, a little <laughs> for bit. the past 30 40 sure, years but sure. and you know i think certain disciplines are always going to come down on certain sides of that sure, um, sure but just realizing that there are multiple axes that are causing uh, what civ as a game is and um, makes it very productive yeah absolutely i think there's a lot of stuff here um 
particularly one of the things that kind of intrigues me about Galloway is I was familiar with the kind of shift from a sovereign form of power to sort of the disciplinary form of power that he mentions, but to now then think about it as control um, and add sort of Deleuze uh, to that conversation of within Foucault is interesting. Uh, and the way that that sort of plays out as video games is a par excellence. I think there's a lot of stuff, hopefully, uh, to bring in another theorist into the game, Bakhtin, dialogically, okay. for later episodes we can return to. Cool. Yeah. I mean, again, that's that's also for me as well. Like, even outside the game's context, thinking about society as a control society and no yeah. longer a disciplinary society helps us. I mean, for a very, you know, we talk about our tag at the beginning is games in society and the academy. And if we think about the weak, the, the sort of softening of disciplinary boundaries within within universities and that kind of stuff, and the, the re-emphasis on interdisciplinarity. Um, what what gives us the sense that we should have that much variability and that much adaptability and modularity? Part of me wants to argue in this very broad, almost uh, could be a historical sort of <laughs> terminology, um, the introduction of computers into society, and that that's shaping the way we think about ourselves. Like, we are, you know, interdisciplinarity is a call for adaptability, for an ability to negotiate between multiple disciplines, right, yeah. instead of remaining within it. So that's And I a, think this is a really productive thing for people of multiple backgrounds and disciplines to work on. I think absolutely. that's what makes it so interesting. Right? Yeah. Cool. Okay. I feel like that's a really good spot <laughs> to end with Galloway. And I maybe... feel like we're all equally frustrated at not having <laughs> brought up what we wanted. To... <laughs> yeah. I, like... I don't know. That's Working through that Galloway text is, man, maybe it's still still something I need to get yeah. back. Yeah. I think this is one of those that. things where we got to say, you know, like we, we talk, we've talked for a long time and I think we brought, we've brought up a lot of interesting issues, you know, um, but Maybe we'll have a second episode on this. <laughs> yeah. But we have to, you know. We're or it can it return in ways that we don't expect in yeah. episodes on entirely different subjects. Yeah. And maybe you guys have thoughts about it. Maybe we totally stumbled over something. Yes. Or you have like, you, you've got a really great two minute explanation of informatic control society. Or 160 characters. Yeah. yeah. Tweet at me. <laughs> Tweet <laughs> at me. At yeah. him. Yes. Tweet me. Before you, before I give you the address for tweeting at him. At it's called a handle, Derek. It's called a handle. Ah, oh, dang it, man, nailed it. Um, so let's 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 talk about what's in our system. So let's talk about what's in our system. So this is uh, this is our final little segment here, where we're going to talk a little bit about what we're playing, reading, thinking about, uh, talking about in in relation to games. Um, Kyle, what's in your system? Sure. Uh, so thanks to my brilliant plan to tell us to play Civ Five, uh, Civ Five is in my system again. <laughs> Which I, I thought I'd gotten out of. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been playing a lot of Civ Five lately, uh, thanks to this podcast. So there you go. You're welcome. Um, I've also been playing this new game, not new game. I've newly been playing this slightly older game called Terraria, which um, is on Steam. Got it for a few books, uh, bucks, not books. I, I would, I would never books. sell a book. Are you kidding? Books are my favorite <laughs> thing in the world. Um, Terraria. The best description I've I've found of it is in a Steam review that says, "Do you like Minecraft? Then you'd like Terraria." Do you hate Minecraft? Don't worry, it's nothing. Uh, do you, <laughs> there's, there's nothing like it. Uh, it's kind of yeah. So that like that explains it better than I could. But it's kind of similar to Minecraft. It's a building game. Um, you know, you get ore and you try to build stuff, and you're a little guy and you fly around. And yeah. it's very fun to watch Parks and Rec while I play Terraria. Very so. good. We should we should at some point try and figure out how we do an episode about like games that you half pay attention to. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that's a really interesting sort of genre of games. Yeah. And I think there's, like, more that fit into that. Than For sure. I, than, I, than I noted before. Oh, yeah. If Thrill. they stopped making <laughs> such good TV shows, I yeah. would pay more attention. 
Thrill, what's in your system? Well, you know, on that subject, I was actually just thinking about that, given the uh, turn-based nature of Civ, and thinking about some of my own sort of games that I play in that sense. And I'm very ashamed to admit that I've logged not quite 400 hours, but 100 hours on the DS version of the GBC port through the virtual console oh of God. not even Pokemon Red and Blue, <laughs> uh-huh. but Pokemon the trading card game. Oh, oh, my, oh my God. Whoa, that's right. from the past. Wow. Now, I also have to say that if you went through to the emulators, um, of which they're on several different computers, and I want to say I probably own three cartridges of it just because I've lost it and then bought it used, uh, and I probably still have my original cartridge somewhere, that probably does get me to... Probably well tell, over 400 hours. Tell me, what is the video game version of the Pokemon card game? So, is I it, mean, have you ever played the trading card game? I, I did have some cards. I think I played it like Didn't two everyone, times. like everyone in our age group had sure. some yes. somehow. Sure. Like you never bought them. Yeah. They just were in your house. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they just... Just you are you are eight years You're old. Like, oh, in two, yeah. in there was a know, point in time where I had an N64 box full of just random <laughs> yeah. doubles. I think that yeah. actually probably is the case too. Everyone just got an N64 box in their house. And they're like, oh, I'm nine. Cool. Is that the, <laughs> the most 90s, 90s yeah. thing ever? Yeah. An N64 box full of Pokemon cards. So I mean, sadly, the game kind of it restricts itself to following the kind of regular games, the sort of regular red and blue. So they're like eight leaders of their respective gyms and they each kind of specialize in a particular type. So there's like a fighting type, a grass type, a fire type, which is less interesting than it should be because the game, the card game itself is more strategy based. So there are different ways to kind of construct your deck to play different styles. Um, so I've just kind of, it's, it's, it's shameful that it's taken me as long as it has since I was playing with those cards when I was like 10 to realize some of the cool strategies and combinations within the first three sets. Um, <laughs> but it's it's gotten to the point where like I I failed the Sporkle quiz of the 150 on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, but I know enough about each of the cards that like playing the game and knowing what something does, there's never any surprises. Yeah. So it's all pretty basic in, in terms of that. Okay. I have a very important question. Sure. Does that game create its own referent, or is it referencing an objective reality Ooh. where tiny monsters run around? Interesting. So, if I ever get my 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 way and become a teacher or a professor, and I have my new media course, and I have the opportunity to give my students a quiz, uh, because my new media professor in undergrad did this, I will open the ROM on the computer pull down the big screen and project it on <laughs> so they can watch it and then have a conversation about metalepsis or some other similar form of diegesis and talk about <laughs> how, yes, this was originally for a Game Boy, but the Game Boy was representing the card game, but the card game was representing the show. Yeah, and somewhere in there, maybe the actual video game yeah, of Red exists. and Blue was in there. Yeah. So there's just so many levels. And the fact Man. that it's emulated onto the 3DX console, <laughs> wild. That's Man, a lot new of media f- sounds way more fun than history classes so far. <laughs> hey, you just got to make them. You got to you got to start doing different kinds of history classes. Planning on it. Okay. <laughs> please hire me, anybody. Please. In please, three years, please. please. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I am still playing Overwatch. Um, I just can't stop. You got caught. I I like I, I I like got the password off and I changed it and I wrote on a post-it note just so I could like play Civ Five. And I just came back to it. It's just so, I don't know. You sound like an addict. I, it's, it's, I feel like it a little yeah. bit sometimes. But, um, I mean, that's not that's that's in my system only like a little bit. I'm so, just playing it here. correct me there. if I'm wrong. Yeah. Don't you play Civ through Steam? 
Yeah. yeah. And don't you play Overwatch through, through the Blizzard Battle.net Yes. App? So then why were those the same password? <laughs> oh, they were different passwords. It was just like I like I took the um, I changed the password and then I didn't save it in my password manager and I wrote it on a Post-it note. to try to play it less. To sort of like oh it's so easy to just have the password saved mm-hmm. or to just click it from my password manager, but if I take that Post-it note and I put it in my desk in another room, I have to get up and go get yeah, that thing. Making and like physical during that barriers walk, to playing. That yeah. Walk of shame. I like <laughs> I, I like just thinking about the walk. I'm like oh never mind. I'll do something else. But this this is not the like. The psychology. Tell guys. us more about your strategies for <laughs> for, for new hot tips on yeah. making yourself feel bad. <laughs> That's going to be our first scholars at play pro tip. Scholars at play pro tip. Pro, 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 pro tip. This is going to be a thing now, by so, the way. So uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope we left sufficient blank space there. But uh, yeah. So if you're looking to try and get yourself off a game, change the password, write it down on a post-it note, and then put it in your and desk. shame yourself all the time. Yeah. Um, what I really actually wanted to sort of mention for what's in my system is a game that I found through uh, I found it I think maybe Polygon did a write up about it or something like that um, but it's it's a game called Dialogue 3D uh, and this this extends Kyle has written in our show notes uh, Nazi Killcast episode 3 <laughs> so to keep our anti-Nazi anti-fascist we oppose uh, Nazis which yeah. funnily enough in our first episode was a joke and now I'm literally saying <laughs> yeah. we need to oppose Nazis because it's a thing again <laughs> oh god I came wish... here for two reasons to punch Nazis <laughs> and save the humanities and they just cut funding <laughs> bingo so like there's been a lot of talk uh, on the internets and elsewhere about whether or not violence against uh, people who like explicitly identify as fascists or Nazis is justified. And I don't. I'm not. I don't. I'm not here to make an argument for either side. I do want to draw your attention to Dialogue 3D, which is a mod of Wolfenstein 3D, the original game, um, which is actually available online to like mod for free, and uh, a game dev on itch called uh, his name is Ramsey Nasser did create a mod for it, and the mod is very simple and very perfect. (laughs) You start Wolfenstein 3D, you move forward through that first blue door, and you turn and you try to shoot your first Nazi, and when you press the fire button, a dialogue box pops up. And it has text, for example, like, wait, wait, isn't it important to protect their free speech as well? Or, and doesn't this make you look violent and crazy? Or, won't this just make them look like the victims? And you have to press yes or no on this dialogue box before you can take any more actions in the game. And usually this leads to you getting very, killed very before, you death, can, yeah. before you can shoot back at the, at the Nazis. Um, I just think it's, it's, it's a clever, silly sort of one kind of one hit wonder. I think it's just kind of out there doing one thing. And I think it's really funny yeah. and I like it a lot. And I think it's, uh, you should check it out. Yep. And we've hit our two recurring themes, me and Terrell arguing over Destiny yes. and Nazi kill cast. Yes, absolutely. Crushed it. Yeah. Nice. Achievement <laughs> unlocked. So um, if you guys want to come and talk to us on come the Come at internet, us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's keep that. I, will, I was going to do that, so I can't even <laughs> call you out. Um, if you want to check us out on the internet, you can check us out at uh, on Twitter, at Scholars at Play, or send us an email at Scholars at Play podcast at gmail.com. Kyle, what are you on Twitter? I'm at Twitter at E underscore Kyle underscore Romero. And Terrell? Black Socrates. Yeah, there you go. And I'm uh, at digital underscore Derek. 
reach out to us if you got comments, thoughts, whatever, you know, anything. We're, we're happy to chat with you. I wanted to thank, again, real quick, the Curb Center for Art, Enterprise, and Public Policy at Vanderbilt University for providing support, equipment, time, space, all this good stuff to make this, uh, this podcast happen, especially Jay Clayton. Uh, I want to thank the Haystack Program for sort of helping – Helping get this project started, um, I want to thank Ed Chang for his work at the Critical Gaming Project for sort of inspiration. Um, Visager, so that's twitter.com slash Music for the use of his freely available song, The Plateau at Night. That's our intro and outro song, which you'll be hearing very soon. Uh, we're gonna, we're, we've got two sort of episode ideas in the works. We're thinking about taking a look at Gone Home and sort of tackling the shitty title of walking simulators and <laughs> being more productive in our, our thoughts about that. And also, uh, the Vanderbilt DH Center has a VR headset, and it's really so cool. We're gonna get into and it. We're gonna we're gonna get in there, and we're just gonna have a we're just gonna barf a bunch, and then just talk about <laughs> VR in some way. VR so. podcast. Yeah. So so it's gonna be weird. I don't know. How, like VR is already hard to describe, and then we're gonna try and do a podcast in an audio about, format. Uh, yeah. yeah. We're we're just you know media specificity <laughs> be. Be damned. Maybe we We're should gonna... write a pamphlet about it, too. Yeah, you know? maybe. And then just, like... <laughs> Scrawl some rocks. Six more layers of mail it to someone, and yeah. So that's what we're looking up in the future. Um, keep an eye out for that. So thanks right. a bunch thanks for Thanks a listening. lot, guys. Uh, Appreciate I'm, you. I'm Derek Price. I'm Kyle Romero. I'm Terrell Taylor. We'll see you later. See you next time. Be easy. <laughs> <laughs>